This is the Room Now podcast, and you're listening to highlights from the ACR 2020 virtual meeting. Our faculty reporters have been doing videos and recordings so that you can stay up to date. Hope you enjoy these and our panel discussions. Hi, this is Bella Mehta from New York reporting for ACR 2020. The abstract number that I want to talk about is 1633, and it's titled A Randomized Double-Blind Placebo-Controlled Trial for Anakinra in Pediatric and Adult Patients with Stills Disease. The trial is named Anna Stills, Anna for Anakinra and Stills for Stills Disease. As we all know, Anakinra is an IL-1 receptor antagonist. And IL-1 is a predominant cytokine that they think about as a pathology in Stills disease. This was a 12-week study in patients with active and newly diagnosed Stills disease. 12 patients were enrolled in this randomized study, where six patients were assigned to the placebo arm, six patients were assigned to the treatment arm. In the treatment arm, two patients were given the two milligram per kg per, do, per day subcute dose of anakinra, whereas four patients were given the four milligram per kg per day subcute dose of anakinra. All patients met the either the ILR criteria if they were less than 16 or the Yamaguchi criteria if they were greater than 16 years of age. The primary objective was to reach ACR 30 and the absence of fever at two weeks, at the two weeks time point. So five patients received the placebo. One patient dropped out because the patient was actually diagnosed with lymphoma and did not have the original diagnosis of Stills disease. Six patients continued on the drug over the 12 week point time point. Of the six patients, all six of them achieved the ACR 30 criteria at week two. Not only that, all of the six patients achieved the ACR 50 as well as 70 criteria at week two. Five of the six patients also re reached the ACR 90 criteria at week two. And all of these effects were sustained over the 12 week period. At the 12 week time point, five patients were at the ACR 90 mark and one patient was at the ACR 70 mark. Of note, all patients in the placebo arm did not have any response and there was a high rate of dropout towards the end of the study in the placebo arm. Again, it's very difficult to enroll patients with still disease in a trial like this and it's, it's possible that it's, most patients do not want to get into a randomized study with a placebo arm, uh, as you can see. Um, still, this is a big study with 12 patients. Um, as the authors also note that it was difficult to recruit and they had to stop the study early. Uh, but overall, an important study showing the utility of IL-1 blockade in Stills disease. Um, a lot of uh, exciting posters and presentations in this area. Uh, for more, tune into Room Now or follow me on Twitter at Bella underscore Meta. And thank you for listening. Hi, Jack. I'm back. I'm out of my party clothes. The election party ended. Uh, I shaved. I got a little bit of a haircut. It's a new day. I'm feeling good. Um, I spent the day today, Sunday, in the bright sunlight here in Portland, Oregon. Beautiful fall colors. Uh, everyone's happy here, finally. And um, I was happy to sit down and, and troll around room now in ACR. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff going on. So um I, I wish i was there <laughs> like everyone else but i'll tell you what i found today that was interesting and make a few comments um first about steroids uh dr hanley from halifax presented some nice data uh poster abstract 1014 looking at corticosteroid use in canada among elderly individuals pa patients over age 65 with ra uh surprising uh well maybe not surprising uh, corticosteroid use is quite common. Uh, I was surprised, though, to see that the bulk of uh, the prescription use there, uh, at least in Canada, 
was um, prescribed by primary care doctors and not the rheumatologists. Only about a third of it was by the rheumatologists. Suffice it to say, which was interesting, that even though there's been this great uptake of biologics and small molecular therapies there over the years, which we all know are steroid sparing, almost every molecule has a study showing that when patients start them, they're able to wean their dose or get off prednisone. So we know there, there's good steroid sparing data with most of those agents, or really all of them. But uh, looking in the real world, population-wise in Canada, at least, um, we see the uptick of those therapies, yet the use of corticosteroids has been um, largely flat. About 30% of RA patients over um, this time period have stayed on uh, or, or have used corticosteroids. Now, the good news in the data showed a decrease um, in the total dosage patients were using and the decrease in the duration of each prescription. So I think there's some good signs there. It sounds like people are trying to wean corticosteroids, uh, but maybe the message also needs to get to the primary care doctors. And that's what I took home from that. Uh, and obviously, this is going to vary upon region and where you are in the world and, and how you practice. But it's looked like from that data that rheumatologists are getting that message and acting on it and, and trying to reduce steroids. And so maybe we need to talk to other um, groups as well that care for these patients. So I transitioned a really nice study that was just published in, in the Annals of Internal Medicine and uh, the nice thing about that is I think a lot of internists do read it um, and family practice docs, primary care doctors do read it. And this was Mike George's work, uh, who's an outstanding young researcher from UPenn. And I was uh, privileged to work with him on this project as well as several others. But uh, we looked at uh, Medicare and Optum data in the US and looked at the harms of even low dose steroid use. And we, th we this is well known stuff. However, m most of our observations studies when we look at steroids uh, are, are often confounded by the fact that patients on steroids have higher disease activity. And so the best we can do, we, we control for it in all these studies the best we can, but unless we have good discrete um, information on disease activity, we can't really control for it. So uh, the beauty of that study is Mike did it and he used tax scores and inflammatory markers and a subset of these patients was able to show that even uh, when you control for those things, low-dose steroids on them, their own uh, are a risk factor for serious infection. And the rates of infection at one year time, it was something like 5 to 12% of these patients, depending on the database, would be in the hospital with a serious infection, uh, even at lower doses of steroids. So uh, I think the message is clear uh, to me that, that we need to keep working on this. We probably need to reach out to other types of physicians. I guess the point of that was I got emails and calls from friends and colleagues that were primary care doctors. We said, hey, this is great. You know, I don't normally read about this stuff. Thanks for putting this out there because uh, a lot of us think low-dose steroids probably aren't that big a deal or a lot of us see our patients on them or we use them. Uh, so anyway, I think, um, I think we're moving in the right direction. That being said, I want to just point a few other things out because I think we're moving in the right direction with vaccination. Uh, I know there was a lot of talk today and I think tomorrow about COVID vaccine uh, development, which I'm not going to comment on, um, but I'll comment on the fact that I'm using the, the idea that we are likely to have vaccination for COVID next year. I'm using that as a reason to um, make right now my vaccine moment, meaning, you know, it's time to get vaccinated for everything else because getting a COVID vaccine on its own is going to have all sorts of questions surrounding it, how to do it, when to do it. Um, so why not get, get your vaccines that you need done now, shingles vaccine, pneumococcal vaccine, um, you know, influenza vaccine, obviously prioritizing the respiratory infections right now, influenza, it's influenza season. This is something we need to do. Um, just highlighting a couple things presented yesterday, uh, abstract 632 and 634 on Saturday had to do with vaccine hesitancy and barriers. One of the biggest uh, reasons patients don't get vaccinated. Uh, this was a peds practice. Uh, rheumatology was uh, lack of efficacy or perception of lack of efficacy. Uh, the other study, 632, this was Dr. Colmegna's study in McGill, uh, a large adult room population. Um, and, you know, they, they found that, uh, again, questions of efficacy were some of the, or lack of efficacy were associated with a strong uh, chance that the patient would refuse the um, vaccine. Uh, today, uh, Dr. Uh, Horomansky from Stanford, uh, they surveyed refusers and acceptors of vaccines. And this is uh, number 1135 today, Sunday. 
Uh, and a lot of people, as you know, they, you offer the flu vaccine, they say they get sick from it or they had a bad experience from it before. So uh, those are the things we try to overcome by saying, hey, the vaccine's a lot different than it used to be, or it's, uh, it's better tolerated, or we give it differently sometimes in some cases. So there's, there's various ways to deal with, a strat with these, um, these problems that come up. And uh, one way is showing effectiveness and efficacy. And I'm just going to park it right there because tomorrow that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on vaccines and some of the data presented at ACR talking about effectiveness and efficacy. I think that's important as clearly the, the data presented today highlighted the, the lack of e efficacy or perceived lack of efficacy of net many of our vaccines that drives uh, some vaccine hesitancy. So I think those types of studies that show effectiveness are important. And I'm happy to see some of that work here at ACR. And uh, what else am I gonna talk about? Oh yeah, we'll get back into JAKS, we'll get back into herpes zoster and zoster prevention. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff on Monday and Tuesday this week. So uh, I'll sign off now. Have a great night uh, and enjoy ACR. Cheers. Hi, good evening. This is Leanne Gensler from UCSF in San Francisco reporting for the ACR 2020 uh, conference. I'm reporting on spondylarthritis. Today is the third day of the meeting. Um, and today I'm gonna to be talking about a, a study that was presented in the plenaries. Um, this was abstract number 1444 presented by Anna Malto from France. She presented the, Tychopa, uh, the Tychospa study, which is the tight control study in axial spondylarthritis. And this was a cluster randomized pragmatic trial where they randomized patients, they randomized centers actually with patients um, to either tight control or usual care and followed them up over one year. Uh, this included 18 centers, including uh, centers in Belgium, France, and the Netherlands. And patients were really selected by the centers based on the diagnosis of axial spondylarthritis. They needed to meet the ASIS classification criteria. They needed to have enough disease activity greater than 2.1, which would be high disease activity, and they needed to be biologic naive. They also could not have had two full courses of NSAIDs, and that was because part of the strategy in treating patients with axial spondylarthritis would include using a full dose of a non-steroidal as first-line therapy. And so the patients, if they were, if their cluster, their, their site was randomized to tight control, those patients were seen every four weeks versus usual care sites. Those patients were seen every three months. Um, and their target that they used was trying to get the patients into at least low disease activity or less, which would be an ASDAS less than 2.1. Now, the primary outcome that they used was the proportion of patients meeting the ASIS health index uh, of at least 30% improvement. And so this is a newer disease specific uh, outcome that really is about health and about functioning. And so it's not a disease activity uh, outcome measure, which is nice in that it's separate from thinking about this being active disease. However, we know that it does improve with, disease, with treating disease activity and it's been used in several uh, randomized control trials already as a secondary endpoint. And so they randomized about, about 80 patients to each arm of the, of the study and 72 patients met the uh, end of the year follow-up. And really they looked quite similar, the patients with axial spinal arthritis at baseline. The only difference was that there were more, um, more of the patients in the tight control group were uh, in, the, in university study level centers and more of those patients had had a history of uveitis. But they were able to adjust for these baseline characteristics and the clusters um, and, uh, and really sort of the imbalance that was there at baseline. Now they did not meet their primary uh, objective. The, the uh, primary outcome was not met. So 47% of patients in the tight control group met the 30% um, improvement in the ASIS health index versus 36% in the usual care group. And that was 11% difference. And that was not uh, significant, statistically significant. 
And so unfortunately, they didn't meet their primary endpoint. Now, usually in studies, if you don't meet your primary endpoint, you don't go on to do analyses or report on the secondary endpoints. They did report on these endpoints, which included several disease activity domains and other usual domains of efficacy that you might see in clinical trials. Um, but really, it's hard to interpret those knowing that the primary outcome was not met. They also looked at health economics, and so this is important, particularly in Europe, where they did um, show an, a, a significant difference in the qualities and actually noted that those patients in the treat-to-target group, uh, in the tight control group, really actually had less sick days, which, which is a good thing. And there was no difference in safety, uh, in particular, no difference in infections. But keeping in mind that these patients in a tight control group or even a usual care group, what is it that we treat axial spondyloarthritis patients with? If you follow the algorithm, it's NSAID, then TNF inhibitor, then perhaps another TNF inhibitor, an IL-17 inhibitor, but we're not really adding DMARDs or glucocorticoids to these patients' care. And so it's not that unexpected that patients uh, did not have a higher number of infections in tight control, in the tight control group. Um, the other uh, notable point is that the patients in the um, tight control group did have a higher prescription uh, prevalence for, bio, for biologics. That's not some surprise, but there was no difference in NSAID prescriptions. So, so what accounts for this, this negative trial? I do think it's a really important trial. I think we need more trials like this. We know that these trials in rheumatoid arthritis and, and psoriatic arthritis were significantly positive. Um, and that treating to target is a, is a good thing in those disease states. So one possibility is that the target was too difficult to reach and that this OSIS health index, at least at a 30% improvement, um, may have been too stringent. It is possible also that they weren't powered particularly at that endpoint. Now, uh, under the assumption that they did a power calculation to drive their sample size, it is expected that probably the difference was gonna be bigger and that difference was not as big as it, as it actually was expected to be. The other possibility is that the usual care patients did better than they were expected to do. And now if you think about the fact that these usual care patients were at expert centers, they were being seen every three months and then the next uh, stage for the next intervention was um, performed if they weren't at that target of less than 2.1, it's possible that those patients are doing better than we might expect them to do in daily practice. I certainly don't, do not see patients every three months in usual care. So that is also a possibility. Needless to say, a really important study, despite its negative result, I think we're now at a point where we have some data, and I don't think, at least in the US, it changed the, changes the recommendation that we don't have enough evidence to treat to target yet in axial spondyloarthritis. So hopefully this will generate more research um, and studies to, to really optimize the outcomes in these patients. This is Leanne Gensler reporting on spondyloarthritis for the ACR 2020 conference. Uh, for, no, for more information, please go to room now. Welcome to this Room Now Roundtable on Gout at the 2020 ACR Convergence Meeting. I'm Michael Pillinger from NYU Grossman School of Medicine, and I'm pleased to be this year's gout editor for Room Now. I'm joined today by two really wonderful gautologists and colleagues, and I'm very pleased to introduce them to you. Uh, these are Dr. Naomi Schlesinger, who is Chief of Rheumatology at the Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Um, hi, Naomi, welcome. Hi, good afternoon. And Dr. Robert Keenan from the Florence Rheumatology Center of Articularis Healthcare, who is also Adjunct Associate Professor at Duke University School of Medicine. Hi, Rob. Hey, thanks for having me, glad to be here. So um, I, I wish we were together in the same room, but, uh, but there's lots of interesting things going on uh, at this year's meeting regarding gout and, uh, and other crystal diseases. Um, so let's chat about a few of those things. Um, Rob, uh, let me talk about, or ask you to talk about imaging a little bit. Um, you know, when, when we first started hearing about dual energy CT decked a couple of years ago, uh, it seemed really exotic and almost impossible to get done anywhere anyway. But uh, I'm seeing a lot of abstracts this year that it might be moving into, um, if not routine use, uh, at least maybe routine 
research. Is there anything worth noting for our audience about? Yeah, there, there's been, there were several abstracts this year and a few talks as well about uh, dueling GCT specifically and just imaging and gout in general. And, and like you said, I think it's not quite standard of care at this point or in routine use, but the more research that comes out that hopefully kind of will lead the way to a little bit more routine clinical use and, and also just better diagnostics in general, which, you know, one of the abstracts, I, well, there's a couple of abstracts I wanted to mention or at least talk about or touch on was in as far as the quality of imaging, there's, there's still not quite, uh, I guess, a, a consensus on what joints you want to, might want to actually image. You know, everybody assumes, okay, the feet, that's a good one. That's a relatively easy one to do. And maybe the knees. And there was a study uh, actually by um, Sarah Christensen out of uh, Denmark that was probably one of the best talks, best explanations of dual energy CT I've actually ever heard. And what they found was, interestingly enough, that it seems that the patella tendon specifically, as well as the first MT in their mind, in their cohort that they were looking at, was mm -hmm. probably the most sensitive and specific uh, areas to look at for for imaging and, and to pick up those monosodium urate crystals and distinguish them from other crystals such as CPPD, for example. So that was one interesting. And then there was another study I thought was pretty interesting as well that kind of contradicted a lot of the studies that are already <laughs> out there. And that was by uh, um, Dr. Uh, Schaefer out of Germany. And what they showed, it was a little bit of a smaller study, but what they showed was the sensitivity and specificity of, of uh, delinearity CT compared to uh, ultrasound was not that much better. The uh, sensitivity actually was a lot lower than that of ultrasound, while the specificity was, was much higher than, than uh, other reports, or at least it was 100% in their study, which was about 10 to 15 or maybe 20% higher than in other published literature over the last several years versus ultrasound being around uh, 70, 75%. Now the, I know I was supposed to mention the abstract numbers on that. So that abstract number was uh, 1542. And then the Christensen abstract number was, um, what was that? That was, uh, I want to say 445. That was in the big, that was in some of the talks. Uh, you can remember these things. So, but, but, um, I thought they were both interesting studies and, and there were a few other studies out there looking at ultrasound versus dual CT. And um, out of the, uh, there was a group out of Paris and, and uh, Spain specifically, and I believe it's the Crystalile or Crystalile cohort that they're looking at. And I think Dr. Uh, Singh, Jazz Singh was involved in, in this one abstract specifically that looked at uh, dual energy CT versus ultrasound and alone in combination or in uh, which is better, basically, which is a better diagnostic tool. Are they both better together or is one better than the other specifically? And what they found was that the dual energy CT was actually better and what joints they found that probably had the most sensitivity as well as specificity were the knees and the uh, feet, which is similar to what Dr. Christensen found, just not quite as detailed as saying the patella insertions versus and the first MTP. So, I mean, all that's exciting stuff. And hopefully we can, um, at least in routine clinical care, this becomes a little bit more easy to get or easy to find. But I know that it's still somewhat cost prohibitive, um, especially compared to ultrasound. Sure. And I think too, as, as technology improves and not only with ultrasound, maybe eventually the, the doing your CTs will get cheaper as well. But if I can say one more thing that kind of as a segue, there was another interesting study I wanted to bring up. And, uh, and this goes along with comorbidities as well. And, and I know all of you, both of you are in the camp, the same camp of mine I'm in about cardiovascular disease and gout going hand in hand and, and being yeah. an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And there was a study here again at that same group um, out of uh, Spain and, and France, the Crystalile cohort, Crystalile cohort, I'm not sure how they say it, of course, but they, uh, and this was abstract um, 954. And what they found was uh, they looked at 128 patients 
And what interested me was, aside the fact that only 62% of them, 62% of these patients were not on urate lowering therapy, but uh, <laughs> only 48% or 38% were, but they found that the higher volume, the crystal deposition was associated as well as serum urate levels were associated with all cause mortality over <laughs> history of MI, over BMI, over hypertension, over smoking, over stroke history, all those things um, did not show overall uh, all-cause mortality uh, as the serum rate levels and the crystal deposition on dual CT uh, did. And what was other, another interesting point with that study was the, uh, even though they couldn't figure out or it wasn't clear what volume had to be there to distinguish those folks, um, from the rest of the group mm -hmm. with, uh, lower risks was the, uh, the dual energy CT deposition, crystal deposition was the only predictor of new onset cardiovascular disease or, or heart attack and diabetes. Here again, weight wasn't associated with it. Uh, other cardiovascular risks weren't associated with it. PAD wasn't associated with it, et cetera. So it was interesting findings and it's just, you know, it was a decent sized cohort, but you know, I think further studies will obviously be needed to kind of, you know, validate those findings, but it's still definitely something, something to think about. So, so I guess, um, and maybe I'll, uh, I'll ask you this, Naomi, quickly. Um, uh, it sounds, Rob, a, a little bit like what we're learning is how to maybe use this uh, modality. If we're trying to make a diagnosis, there are probably places to look where the sensitivity and specificity is good mm -hmm. uh, and others that aren't. Um, on the other hand, uh, you know, if we're trying to uh, I, you know, examine a cause of pain that might be gout, it might be a, a, a different situation where you might go to uh, a, a normally less sensitive area. And it might be either from that last study, a really good, a better severity marker, or it might be telling us biologically something completely different. I, I don't know, Naomi, how, how do yeah, I, I want to add a few things, actually, we, uh, Although it's not, we haven't revised this in for publication as of yet, but uh, we looked at our cohort of dual energy CT and I was actually pretty shocked how few were actually, this is not in a study, this is a real life cohort, mm -hmm. how few of my patients that I asked them to have a dual energy CT had it because the insurance did not approve it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, looking at patients, so within the first three years, many of them don't have any changes. It doesn't mean that they don't have gout, it just means that... Um, they didn't have changes suggestive of gout. I want to add that I saw today uh, a Pearl's lecture by Dr. Stone, and he talked about temporary arteritis and how it used to be the golden standard was to do biopsy, but maybe now imaging. And I, I wonder if with, in our field as well, you know, at, uh, doing fluid analysis, looking for the monosodium urea crystals is done by only about 10% of rheumatologists. So a few of us, so could this actually, the dual CT or maybe ultrasound actually replace this in the future? That could well be. And I want to also add to uh, what Rob said very eloquently, that uh, could be that we are going to be doing dual CTs um, of the joints and then maybe carotids and then maybe heart. And then maybe, you know, where this, this is an area that's just starting to... Uh, uh, to have uh, research and studies. So that is very exciting. I mean, uh, again, gout is a disease state, not just joints and so on. And, and, and you know, and treatment goes along with that. It's not just the joints. So- I, I, um, just, I have to add uh, a, a case, it was, it was supposed to be a study, but it came, became a case report for us, Rob. I was thinking about what you were saying about uh, ultrasound and we treated uh, one patient uh, with TOFI, with pegloticase, knowing from uh, Nicola Dalbes studies that TOFI have a rind of um, fibrosis around them. And what we found was that when this patient's TOFI uh, were not clinically resolved and were not fully resolved on ultrasound, uh, all the urate was gone out of them. It was like we deflated a balloon. And the deck was the thing that you could use to say, the problem is no longer the urate that's there. It's you have this fibrotic capsule and who knows, uh, you know, what will happen with yeah, that. And there's an abstract presented, the, the number I don't know, but uh, in this meeting, 
looking at this appearance of um, really the, uh, what we called icing and the other group called double contour sign, but we described uh, this appearance of the monosodium urea crystals within seven months of treatment. And, and there's a eloquent study, a larger study showing that what we uh, showed 10 years ago. Uh, it's interesting how, you know, people are doing similar studies and, uh, yeah, that, that speaks to uh, yeah, that speaks a little to better. No, I was saying that what you're what you both are saying is what speaks to Dr. Christensen's uh, lecture in her her talk and her slides, and and she just she distinguishes in the reasons why we're seeing what we're seeing, and some of the things are kind of merged or blurred on dual energy ZT, and they're not as specific and sensitive as we want them to be. Is because of this something called a Compton effect and something called a photoelectric effect. And the, the, the difference between how the CT works and how the dual energy CT works, and those are kind of, I guess, the duals or the competent effect and the uh, photoelectric effect, while the latter kind of is important for picking up those crystals and the former is important to pick up the soft tissue and, and distinguishing the two from one another and not kind of confusing, you know, other calcifications or uh, mineralization and from the, and I think, from the uric acid crystals specifically. And I think here again, as technology hopefully improves, not only with CT, but maybe even ultrasound, that I think we will hopefully do a better, better job of, of figuring out, okay, the difference in, in distinguishing those two. Uh, and, let let, let me, ha having, I think that's a good segue, having talked about that and having talked about, uh, mentioned Peglotic case too. Let me, let me just uh, turn to another question I wanted to ask both of you, and uh, maybe I'll throw this one out to you, Naomi. There are a lot of abstracts uh, at this meeting using, basically using DMARGs with peglotiques. Uh, and it is definitely uh, for a problem that I've experienced. And I, I was wondering if you could tell us about that and we could have a conversation about that. Sure. Uh, so basically peglotiques is uh, pegylated the common mammalian uricase to treat refractory gout and, and uh, um, this approach was used to um, increase uh, the half-life of the enzyme. And, uh, but what happened was that there was development of anti-piglodicase antibodies. And, and, um, and then the question, in, sorry, in 2018 was use of uh, immunomodulators, uh, initially, piglo uh, initially piglodicase with methotrexate, um, then uh, Dr. Pillinger described uh, in a patient uh, getting azotipurine, amiran, uh, and so on. And I, so I'll just discuss a few of the abstracts I saw uh, treatment with immunomodulation. So actually, I, I, I will start with a study that was a multi-center open-label study looking at uh, piglodicase in patients that have undergone kidney transplantation. Mm. And I thought this was very interesting because... Um, these patients uh, post-kidney transplant had very bad gout and, and were given piglodicase. And these patients uh, were on two or more immunosuppressive drugs due to their transplant. Hence, they were on immunomodulation. And, and in this study, although a small study, of, uh, 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 they just uh, started enrolling uh, the PROTECT trial, they saw that the hack uh, pain score had gone down and really they didn't see any uh, infusion reactions, which, which is what we worry with uh, uh, these piglodicase antibody formation. So that was one study that I thought was interesting. And, and this was something that was discussed yesterday in the gout lecture. And, um, and uh, what do we do with our uh, kidney transplant patients? So that is uh, an interesting option. And that was the abstract 649. Then moving on to uh, abstract 677, uh, this is the mirror trial. It was an open label study. Uh, Botson who led this and initially uh, published the data in 2018 using methotrexate. He uses 15 milligrams four weeks prior to um, starting piglodicase. And, um, and this was very successful. Initially, the, the primary outcome was, uh, was um, serum urate proportion of responders during month six, half a year with a serum of uric of less than six and 80% of the time. And 80% uh, met the primary outcome in the study. And this is double what it was. It was Sorry, double what it was. Double, 
the it was double what it was in the original trials, which was forty two percent. That's it had, it's fourteen patients. Uh, so, um, but th so this was um, um, the Mira trial. Mm -hmm. So that was presented and interesting. And I, I think we feel very comfortable using methotrexate. Interesting that's four weeks before. Interesting that's fifteen milligrams. Uh, some maybe would use other um, doses and, and so on, but I think that's a good uh, place to start. And then there's the triple trial using uh, Imuran or azotirpine uh, in chronic refractory gout. This was after 685 and presented by uh, Herb uh, Baroff. And, and um, patients are screened for the uh, AZA met uh, metabolizing uh, enzyme, tirpine methyltransferase, and uh, uh, they have a dose escalation after two weeks, um, a 24-week uh, study, and um, they all received the infusion of prophylaxis and hydrocortisone, just like in the initial trials. And, and uh, 12 patients were enrolled to date. They all had bad gout and had tobacious gout. They also did well. Um, these uh, patients with Imuran, one patient had infusion reaction, but really other than that, it looks good. Mm -hmm. uh, safe and efficacious. Uh, people with, uh, yesterday was discussed in one of the meetings, but uh, the people worry about Imuran and gout, but it's really Imuran and allopurinol. Allopurinol interferes with the metabolism of uh, Imuran, increasing the plasma levels of mecroptopurin, but uh, the other case is a totally different uh, treatment and mechanism of uh, And And drug. actually we're not supposed to use allopurinol with peglodicase, so. Uh, uh, that is correct. So that is correct, but I'm right. talking about the amuran and allopurinol. People are worried using right. amuran and gout patients because of allopurinol, hmm. but they're not on allopurinol, they're on amuran right. and pigloticase. So it's nothing to worry about. I mean, it's a different drug. And then there was um, the recipe trial, the nine, after 952, where uh, patients are now giving uh, um, mycophenolate. Uh, which was a phase two double-blind randomized controlled trial. Uh, the first offer is Dr. Puja Khanna. And uh, they compare mycophenolate, uh, which they, again, increase uh, the dosing, and, and uh, they compare it to uh, placebo. 32 patients receive at least one dose of pegloticase. Um, the problem that I found here is that, that the mycophenolate arm had higher adverse events, uh, uh, more musculoskeletal problems, respiratory problems, and infections. And uh, however, the placebo arm had more infusion reactions, which is expected. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. the percentage of subjects maintaining the well, steroid. Suggest my what did you say? I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, and I'm almost done with this. But that, no, I was just going to say um, that sounds like my Yeah. So, yeah, it sounds, it, it definitely does what microvenolate does. And that's a kind of an unusual side effects or adverse reactions. You know, the, the issue with, with using microvenolate is basically, in my opinion, really clinically, it's not super practical in the sense sometimes insurance companies will deny it. It's not always the easiest medication to get, even though it is generic. It's not as cheap as azathioprine, of course. It seems right. to maybe work better than azathioprine, at least in the, the data we have so far. But so far, it seems the most practical reason, even though it's sometimes still not as easy to get as it should be, is methotrexate. And mm -hmm. I haven't, I have not started anybody on the pegloticase in the last probably 12 to 18 months, maybe more than that now, um, on pegloticase without starting them on a DMART of some sort, whether it's methotrexate or whether it's, you know, stronger immunosuppression like azathioprine or mycophenolate. Well, I, 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 I agree with you that methotrexate uh, probably should be the go-to uh, drug. It's, it's the one in some ways, even though it's not the oldest of the three, it's probably the one we're most comfortable with. But mm -hmm. um, of course, some yeah. of our gout patients uh, may drink alcohol and uh, it's good yeah. if we have options. And then this leads me to uh, the last abstract that I'm going to be discussing is 665, although I could discuss a few more, but mm -hmm. it's uh, the trends in immunodulation with uh, pegloticase. So basically they took um, a large uh, medical claims database and, and uh, 
reviewed uh, the use of uh, pegloricase with an immunomodulator. Uh, there were 1.3 billion claims. Hmm. And they looked at patients that were prescribed methotrexate or Imuran within 60 days before or after receiving the first pegloricase uh, infusion. And uh, what they found is really that since uh, 2018, basically exactly what you described, Rob, uh, we're using more immunomodulation. And uh, if the four, uh, uh, 1% to 4% were using immunomodulation, now it's up in 2019 to 15% of patients on pegloticase receiving the immunomodulator mostly within 30 days of starting pegloticase and mostly methotrexate. So, so this goes with what we just discussed that um, um, methotrexate most commonly used in this database. And, and, and I think with uh, the new trials that are gonna be coming out in publication, not just abstract form, we're gonna be seeing more immunomodulation uh, being used with uh, pigloticase. So- um, Yeah, it just raises questions about, okay, when to start, what dose to start, what to start. You know, all those questions kind of arise, you know, should, you know, there's, there's data out there that shows, okay, in some case reports, they've started at the same time as case. Some are starting two weeks prior. Some are starting four weeks prior. I yeah. think, I believe in what the, do you uh, do, Rob? what do you do? I usually, if I can, I usually do four weeks. A couple of times it's been shortened because the patient ended up getting infused sooner than I anticipated for whatever reason. And, uh, but usually I try to do four weeks prior just to be on the prudent side, just to make sure, okay, if it's methotrexate, it's going to start doing something. It's yeah. got time to do it. You know, the, the uh, recipe trial, I believe was what, two weeks prior starting yeah. MMF. Right. So, and um, so, I mean, it's, it's, and I think the, well, the mirror trial was, I think mirror trial was four weeks prior, I think too. So I guess it depends. And I think, you know, it's still, the questions are still out there. And, and also the, yeah, the 15 milligrams, I use 10 milligrams, but mine is anecdotal. It's not based on any trial, but I feel very comfortable using 10 milligrams. So, uh, yeah, I've, I use, I've been using 20. I've used 15 and 20, depending on the situation, I guess, and how. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, so, this is anecdotal, not supported yeah. by trial data. I want to add something important that I'm, I know that you know, but. Um, our our uh, time is almost up, Naomi, so we'll give you the last word here. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. No, I don't need the last word, but uh, Lipskit, I'll actually publish um, uh, data about antibodies and, and say that uh, over 60% of, of patients that are over 70 develop, are, uh, do not develop, uh, our responders do not develop the antibodies. Whereas the younger guys, less than 60, uh, most of them develop antibodies. So, um, you know, the, the younger patients getting pigloticase, those are the ones that we have to worry about infusion reaction, while the, the older patients, not so much. And I, I uh, maybe the, the younger, heavier patients, those are the ones that we have to worry about uh, infusion yeah. reactions. So there is so much more that we might talk about. I actually wanted to talk about what diet does now. That seems to be a so please do. More, please more confusing do. question, but... Our time is up. So um, uh, uh, on behalf of Dr. Keenan and Dr. Schlesinger and myself, uh, those of you who are watching this, thank you for joining us. And uh, keep looking at Room Now for more gout reports and have a wonderful meeting. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank have you. a good night. Good thank you, you both. so much. Thank you. Hello, I'm Jeff Curtis, a rheumatologist at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Full disclosure, I'm not a disc jockey, but if I was a DJ, I would probably, at least at times, reach for music that's familiar and comfortable that everybody likes. So if this were research though, what kind of a study would that be? Well, probably a treat to target study in arthritis. You're familiar with Tychora, kind of dated now, but the concept of course is very familiar and you could hum that tune. Then we had Tychopa, tight control and psoriatic arthritis. And to complete the triad, we've got the third verse, same song, but, uh, but not quite the same as the first. So this is Tychospa. So this is the spondyloarthritis version of the tight control trial that may seem quite familiar to you. But let's look a little bit past the melody line and think about how it's different. It's coming out of Europe, 
And one unique aspect to it is it's primarily done in centers that are experts in the management of spondyloarthritis. This is not a large pragmatic trial. This is not routine care, not really, because the centers that are participating in Europe, and there are only 18 of them, are not your average run-of-the-mill community practice centers. It's 160 patients, now 90% completed, and so that's a total of 144. And the interesting feature of this trial, Tycospa, is that the sites themselves were randomized. You might ask, why would you do that? You would do that and you randomize sites when there's the threat that you basically have contamination at the site. Contamination meaning that docs overall are gonna get used to doing things in a certain way. So if you have a protocol that's in place that's supposed, that's supposed to be on your mind at any given moment about escalating and measuring things, it's gonna be hard for you not to do that, even if this is a usual care arm. So that's the contamination part. It's that your practice behaviors will be contaminated because for some, but not all patients, they're supposed to be getting this aggressive treatment that is metric driven based on disease activity. That's why you randomize sites or clusters. You do pay a statistical penalty when you do that. You have to control for that clustering and those observations are not independent. So you typically need a somewhat bigger sample size to take care of this so-called design effect where patients clustered or nested within sites are more alike and aren't truly independent. And there's statistical ways to account for that, but you are gonna need a somewhat bigger trial. So what's the intervention? Well, the intervention is what its name might seem for it to be. It's tight control. In this case, tight control meant we're gonna take biologic naive people who meet ACES criteria for spondyloarthritis and they're going to have a tight control protocol applied at that center. They're gonna see the rheumatologist once a month, every month for a year, and there's gonna be a treatment escalation protocol according to a disease activity measure, the ASTAS, that frankly most US rheumatologists don't measure in spondyloarthritis patients. The interesting thing about this trial, they didn't use the same measure to escalate care as for their outcome. That's actually a strength because otherwise, if you're using the same measure, if this was the DAS28, for example, in RA, you know, it, it becomes a little bit self-fulfilling if you're escalating according to a number. Of course, that number should be better at the end of the study in the intervention arm. So these investigators, I think, did took the high road and they're measuring something at the end that isn't quite the same thing as their escalating treatment. To, to look at the outcomes. They also looked at a variety of other outcomes and it's a bit of alphabet soup. Bottom line, what did it show? It showed that overall for the primary outcome, there wasn't a significant difference. There wasn't a significant benefit in the tight control arm. The difference in their main outcome, which was the ASAS health index, which is kind of a global measure of disease activity as it affects overall patient function. There was a delta of roughly 10 to 15% in that outcome and multiple other outcomes. So not trivial, but it's not an amazing difference. The primary outcome wasn't statistically significant. The p-value was 0.09. Some of the other things like the ASAS 40, again, the Delta 10 to 15% range. So modest, probably clinically relevant between groups, but not extraordinary and overwhelming. One has to think implication-wise though, you know, do patients even wanna come back once a month? The other thing that you need to consider is, you know, what proportion of people needed biologic therapies? These are biologic naive individuals that could have been on NSAIDs, you know, maybe the alternative approach, just put everybody on a biologic that has spondyloarthritis. If you had spondyloarthritis, that's maybe what you would want. You know, give me my best shot of doing great. So in the intervention arm, 57% of people went on a biologic. So clearly not everybody, not even most people. There's, uh, you know, just over half. In the usual care arm, it's about 27%. So the fact that not everybody got put on a biologic and not even most people in the intervention arm, to me, it makes good sense to, to rebut the notion, we should just put everybody on a biologic and not worry about measuring stuff and having them come back a lot. So I do think that that was another strength. They did a health economic analysis, not surprisingly from the healthcare perspective, you spend more money in the intervention arm if you're gonna use a lot more biologics, but because it wasn't everyone, there was a fair amount of thought applied.
So bottom line, I think this is a helpful trial. It rounds out the triad of tight control in RA, psoriatic arthritis, and now spondyloarthritis. In terms of the practicality of it, you know, are U.S. rheumatologists going to do this? Probably not exactly, and I doubt most are even measuring you know, the ASDAS or the ASAS or anything else in a formal way. On the other hand, having a discussion with your patient, you know, here's what remission or something close to it or minimal disease activity looks like. Let's talk about that and let's keep changing treatments till we get there. You know, we want you doing well, not just doing better. That's the notion here. I think that that concept is generalizable and should resonate with patients. It'll take a little bit of extra time to explain, but I think that the results from this trial suggest that patients are actually gonna feel better, their function's gonna get better if you're adhering to the principle and the main concepts, even if the implementation in your own practice might look a little bit different. Thanks for your interest. Hi, David Liu, reporting for Room Now for ACR 2020, uh, here from Melbourne, Australia. Zoster is the issue I want to talk about today, and in particular, what to do about vaccination and whether Shingrix might have adverse events on our, our patients or not. Now, we know that Zoster is a real issue for our patients, especially for those who we immunosuppress. Those are the patients who are at greatest risk and I think we've all had patients who have suffered through zoster, suffered through post-hepatic neuralgia, and really regret it. Now, at the same time, the first vaccine that we had, Zostavax, the Lyme vaccine, was an issue for these patients, at least on paper. And so we've been uh, looking to the recombinant vaccine, to Shingrix, uh, as a solution to that, um, even when there have been global shortages. But we want to know what to do when we are able to get it. And the question always, has always come about, about because of the adjuvant. Now the adjuvant's there to boost up the response. Uh, it's very immunogenic, uh, but that gives you that burden of reactogenicity. And we've been concerned for some time now, for the last few years, as to what would happen to our rheumatic disease patients and their disease when we give them the vaccine. It's always been a big question mark. So Cleveland Clinic and uh, Tiffany Lafont in particular, um, have looked and captured the experience of rheumatic disease patients in their 622 uh, patients who got vaccinated, 359 of whom had inflammatory disease. Variety of different diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, vasculitis, lupus, PMR, and them, comparing those to the non-inflammatory disease patients. Long and the short of it was that flares certainly did occur in that 12-week period after the after the dose and uh, after the two doses. In fact, you know, about one in six of those patients did have a flare at some point, but those flares were quite mild, really, quite mild and quite manageable. There were certainly risk factors. Well, there were certainly associations to the patients were more likely to get it. Um, steroids at the time of the vaccine uh, conferred a higher risk of flare, uh, but really all of these were fairly manageable. And I think that really speaks to the idea that even though maybe the, um, there's a hazard ratio of 2.4 um, for flare, but that this isn't something that we should necessarily be scared of and the, and the payoff is certainly there as well for our patients in terms of zoster prevention. So I think that's more reassuring data once we get access to the vaccine again, or for those of us who do have access, I think this is gonna be the kind of thing which we can really bring to the clinic. For more about vaccinations, infection-related rheumatic disease, and the whole of ACI 2020, head along to roomnow.com.